There are Christians today, now in many of our so-called Christian schools, that are saying it's a viable option to embrace theistic evolution. That is, they'll say scientifically we cannot deny evolution, but God simply used evolution as the means in which to create. The problem with that is you have death before the fall. And God is very clear that there's not death before the fall, that death enters into the world as we've been studying in this chapter because of Adam's sin. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. As we continue to work our way through the fifth chapter of the book of Romans, we come today to verses 18 to 21, where we find God's superabounding grace as demonstrated through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Romans chapter 5, Romans 5. In just a moment, we're going to begin reading in verse 18 where we left off last time. The book of Romans is the foundation of our faith. It's rightly called the constitution of Christianity. It's the solid rock in which really unfolds every major doctrine of the Christian faith. If you can understand the book of Romans, the whole of Scripture will be opened up to you. Now remember how the book divides. There are three major divisions. In chapters 1 through 8, there is the doctrinal section. In 9 through 11, that focuses on Israel, the national section. And then 12 to 16, you have the practical section. In the first section, God's righteousness is revealed. In the second section, His righteousness is vindicated, it's proved, and that He keeps His promises that He makes. And then in the final section, it's applied, how we put it into shoe leather in the daily experiences of life. We saw that each section in turn divides into three sections. And so here in the doctrinal section of chapters 1 through 8, after he introduces us to the gospel in the first 17 verses, he unfolds three major doctrines of Christianity. The doctrine of condemnation and wrath, the doctrine of justification, and the doctrine of sanctification. Paul first reveals to us the bad news so that we can see the good news. He knows that before you can get a man saved, you have to get him lost. And so he spends 118 all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20 helping us to see that. When you come to 321, all the way to the end of chapter 5 where we are today, he moves into the doctrine of justification. It doesn't mean just as if you never sinned. It means just as if you had always obeyed. It's a declaration, a legal standing we saw that God gives to the sinning believer. And in one sense, indeed, God's righteousness is revealed because in these chapters, we see how it is a righteous God can take unrighteous people and give them a righteous standing in His side. And then when we turn the chapter to chapter 6 all the way through 8, He'll deal with the doctrine of sanctification. Justification deals with our position, sanctification with our practice. And in 6 through 8, He's going to teach us that Christ's death on the cross not only dealt with the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. But before he can do that, what he's showing us here in the fifth chapter is critical because he's creating an analogy that if we can get a hold of it, we will be able to understand a second analogy that he will give us in the sixth chapter. 
So in chapter 3, he unfolds this righteousness that is given to us as a gift and the merits of Christ's blood. In chapter 4, he illustrates it. In chapter 5, where we are, he opens with the word, therefore. And of course, he spent the first 11 verses giving us the implications of being saved, of being justified. And we spent three hours just on that, three sermons. And the second half of chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, he gives us another, therefore. And in this section, he brings the doctrine of condemnation and justification together to help us to be able to understand the doctrine of sanctification in chapters 6 through 8. And so, again, he's going to help us to see that our lifestyle needs to match our position. And so here in 12 through 21, he, he sums up condemnation and justification so that he can apply it in the next chapter to sanctification. All right, and we saw that in this section, this last paragraph of the fifth chapter, the key word to understanding the whole text is the word one, found 11 times in 12 verses. Hopefully you have them all underlined. In verse 12, he speaks of the one man. In verse 15, by the transgression of the one, many died. At the end of verse 15, the grace of the one man. In verse 16, he says, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. Then he adds, uh, for on one hand, the judgment arose, but from one transgression, it resulted in condemnation. Verse 17, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, speaking of Adam, then at the end of the verse, he speaks of life through the one, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation. Even so, through one act of righteousness came justification of life, verse 19, through the one man's disobedience, and then he will speak of the obedience of the one Christ. All right, so it's the story of two ones. The one one is Adam, though never named, clearly in view, and the other one, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we saw in turn that verses 12 through 21 really divides into three parts. And when you study Romans, really, if you study any letter of the Bible, after a while, it just begins to blow your mind. You realize no one could have ever thought this up. No man on his own could have written a document like this. And so many Christians, through the study of a book, verse by verse, their conviction deepens and grows and broadens. They know it by faith, but then they begin to know it by experience of the divine inspiration of God's Word. And it's like a puzzle that fits together so perfectly. And so in verses 12 through 21, there are three sections. First, we spend an hour on being introduced to Christ and Adam in verses 12 to 14. And then if you were here last week in verses 15 through 17, he contrasted Christ and Adam. And today, in the rest of the chapter, he will compare Christ with Adam. So let's begin reading verse 18. Follow along in your Bible. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord." 
Now, if you want to jot down a few thoughts for reflection and study this week, there is an outline there in your bulletin. And there are three comparisons that Paul makes. First, the comparison between one act affecting all. He wants to show us how one act affects all. Now, again, if you've been with us, we've talked about how so many people in our day view Adam as simply a myth. Liberal theologians, liberal liberal Bible teachers, liberal pastors, and by liberal I mean people who don't ascribe to what God plainly says, they're lost. They will say that the creation accounts and the fall of man in the first 11 chapters are just a lot of story and hogwash. Some will come out just straight on. And they'll say, this is just something that some man dreamed up. And they'll either say it's not accurate or it's not historical. Or sometimes if they want to keep their job in a denomination that was once conservative to be more conciliatory, they'll say it was simply a parable that teaches us some spiritual lesson. But that's clearly not the picture from either the Genesis account or the rest of Scripture. For instance, when you come all the way to the last book of the Bible, it speaks of the serpent of old and it speaks of the tree of life. The serpent of old who is the devil. In the revelation, as John has given this one revelation, it's not revelations, but revelation. It's one revelation given by Jesus to John. And there in the revelation, he takes us all the way back to the first book in the Bible when that slimy, slithering devil was there in the garden enticing man. He will also speak in the revelation of the tree of life and how we will literally, physically, in the New Jerusalem, eat from the tree of life, the tree that God had intended for Adam to eat. So Romans 5 is a meaningless argument if Adam was not a real person. And so some scholars will say, and I have in quotations, scholar, that the word Adam simply means man. And it is true that the word Adam, uh, Adama is the Hebrew word for earth or soil or dust. Adama, from the earth, Adam was made. And they will underscore that in many passages of the Old Testament, the word Adam just means man or mankind. And they're right, it does in many passages. But in other passages, it's the name of the very first man who ever lived and walked upon the earth. And so the liberal must equally say if he rejects the historicity of Adam, he must reject the historicity of Christ, that he was a real person who literally walked upon the earth because the two are so intertwined, it is impossible to separate them. And so again in verse 18, through one transgression there resulted condemnation, Speaking of Adam's work, through one act, there resulted righteousness. And so Jesus spoke of Adam and Eve as real living persons. He quotes the Genesis account when he describes the purpose of marriage, when he says, for this, ma- for this reason a man shall leave his father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. And when you read the other accounts in Scripture, where God gives us biblical genealogies, Adam is viewed as a real person. If you haven't read it recently, read 1 Chronicles 1. It's a genealogy beginning with Adam, just like Genesis 5, a genealogy beginning with Adam. And when you come to the New Testament in Luke chapter 3, you have the genealogy of Christ going all the way back to Adam. So he's viewed as a real life person. Up there on Mars Hill, when Paul is preaching to 
a bunch of lost people who have given themselves over to idols. He reminds them not to confuse the created order with the creator God. And he reminds them that we were all made from one man going back to Adam. And that this God who made initially one man is the one who gives us life and breath. So Adam's disobedience brought condemnation and death, just as Christ's obedience brought us righteousness and life. And there's nothing in modern science that would contradict this in any way. We're sitting in this room with many different races and kinds of people, but we all constitute one single species so that it's possible for anyone to marry another person. And there's nothing in human history that contradicts what God has said. God literally formed Adam from the Adamah, from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his life the breath of, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. Now, I know it's popular to say that, you know, man came from these cavemen, of which Adam was one, and that, uh, you know, he was just kind of a stupid, slow fellow, that all these cavemen were, you know, suffering from some extreme case of retardation that he was not nearly as smart as we are who have so many letters behind our name. He's just a dumb, old, stupid fella. Well, when I read the account in Genesis, it seems to me he's pretty smart. He has to name all the animals. He says, that's an elephant, and that's a giraffe, and that's a rhinoceros. And then he has to remember the critter's name the next time he sees him. Not so bad. I think probably prior to the fall, they were much smarter than we are. And even as you come in after the fall, you discover that they're very bright people. They're involved in farming in Genesis 3, 4, and 5, the domestication of animals. They make the very first musical instruments. They're involved in the crafting of iron and bronze tools. And really what you find in Genesis is a perfect record of human history. And don't ever, ever, ever forget that no one can say, well, let me read to you a record of what happened 100,000 years ago. Or let me read to you a record of what happened 50,000 years ago or 20,000 years ago. No, the recorded history we have goes no further back than 6,000 years. I don't think that's by accident. We don't have any historical record beyond 6,000 years for the simple fact no one was here 6,000 plus years ago. But what many Christians have ascribed to in the last hundred years are outside influences that they've imposed upon the written texts of the Word of God. No one could ever come to the conclusions they come to concerning Genesis that the days were millions of years long or there were big gaps between the days or anything like that. The simple reading of Scripture is very clear in terms of what God meant. And the creationist has some excellent arguments against the evolutionary geologists. When God created Adam, he created him with the appearance of age. He didn't come into this world as a little infant. He came in as a fully mature adult. And the trees in the garden were fully mature, fruit-bearing trees. And the geological stratification that takes the evolutionist millions of years to create can easily be created through a worldwide flood that is recorded in Genesis chapters 7 through 9. Understand they have a hidden agenda. This agenda that man has been here for millions or some billions of years, that it's been going on for millions of years and it's going to continue on for millions of years. The agenda is, is they don't want to be accountable to God. 
if this has been going on forever and it will continue to go on forever, then they are dismissing God as being involved in time and space. And if you don't believe evolution, you're just a stupid little fool in their minds. But in God's mind, they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. We studied that in Romans chapter 1 because that which is evident about God God has made known to them. And so God's Word teaches that there's a definite beginning and a definite end. They have this blurred line that goes on forever and never the two shall meet. And the Scripture teaches there's a definite beginning and a definite end and the two will meet someday when God, when men meets God in judgment. And so plainly, clearly, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all. And by the way, this throws theistic evolution upside down. There are Christians today, now in many of our so-called Christian schools, that are saying it's a viable option to embrace theistic evolution. That is, they'll say scientifically we cannot deny evolution, but God simply used evolution as the means in which to create. The problem with that is you have death before the fall. And God is very clear that there's not death before the fall, that death enters into the world as we've been studying in this chapter because of Adam's sin. And when you just think and ponder and meditate on the difference between Adam and Christ, it's mind-boggling. For instance, Adam is in a garden called the Garden of Eden, and he chooses to disobey the will of God. In essence, he says, not your will be done, but my will be done. Whereas the Lord Jesus, he's in a different garden. He's in the garden of Gethsemane. And he says, not my will be done, but your will be done. After he chose to sin, Adam was banished from the garden. And God posted holy angels saying, you cannot come back. Where when the Lord Jesus chooses the will of God and obeys the will of God, he is ministered to by angels. And so Adam, he chooses to sin in a perfect environment surrounded and encompassed by the love of God. Where the Lord Jesus chooses to obey in a sinful, wicked, fallen world characterized by hatred, by darkness, by cruelty, and by bitterness. He does just the opposite of what Adam does. So through one transgression, there resulted condemnation. Through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life. Adam's sin brought ruin. Jesus' act of obedience brought a rescue mission through one act of obedience. Now, I hammer this. I underscore this because our kids forget the secular universities now. In the so-called Christian schools, they're being taught that Adam was not a real person. Schools that were once evangelical. And so now it's the exception to the rule to go to a school who says, we're Bible-believing Christians, and we believe that the very first people created were Adam and Eve. That they were real people, that there was no death in the world before the fall, that death came as a result of fall. That is now the exception to the rule. And we need to help our kids to think their way through this, that this is an expression of, of basically rebellion before God, suppressing what God has revealed. Now, look there in your text in verse 18. You see that word, one transgression. He's underscoring that for this whole thing to have happened, for the fall to have unfolded, it didn't take a series of sins, 
that through one act, God tested Adam and he failed. And this word transgression, some of your translations say offense, or some translations say one trespass. It's two Greek words brought together that literally means a false step, a false step. In other words, God had set a path for man to walk on, and man deviated. He took a false step against that path. God had marked out the path for Adam to walk on. You can eat from any tree you want, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will die. He told him how far he could go. He drew a line in the sand and Adam stepped over that line and there resulted condemnation to all men. On the other hand, by comparison, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Justification, again, is a legal term. It speaks of a declaration. We are declared righteous, but understand the word that's with it. We receive justification of life. It's a beautiful picture. See, Adam's sin brought death. It brought condemnation. He sinned with Eve, and the Bible says they discovered they were naked. They had no clothes on the whole time. How did they all of a sudden discover they were naked? Because like Psalm 8 teaches, they were clothed in a robe of light, and when sin entered into the world, the lights went out, and they're aware of their shame, their nakedness, their guilt, and they are hiding from God Almighty. But through this one act of righteousness, Jesus turns the lights back on. He brings justification of life, what's called in the New Testament, eternal life. Jesus defined eternal life in John 17, 3, that they may know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And I've never recovered from that fact that I can know God. You know, sometimes you're around people and they'll drop names of people that they know. But I can tell you this, if you're a Christian, you can drop God's name, that you know the Lord, the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God, the God who knows everything, the God who can do everything, the God who is everywhere. You can know Him through this one act of righteousness that resulted justification of life. Now, this phrase, justification of life, would be comparable to the phrase regeneration or the phrase born again. Uh, Again, when man comes into this world because he's identified with Adam, death is written all over him. His heart is beating towards the grave. He's born aging. He's moving towards death from the moment of conception. But when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ, we are given life. And so we studied in verse 5 of this chapter that the Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts through Christ who loved us. You are born again. If you've been saved, you have the Holy Spirit. Some of our dear Pentecostal friends historically taught, and some still do, that you get saved. And after you get saved, you are baptized with the Spirit where you receive God the Holy Spirit. But the Bible is very clear. All Christians, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, have been baptized by the Spirit. All Christians have the Holy Spirit. So he will say in Romans 8, 9, if you do not have him, you're not one of his. You don't get saved, become a child of God, and later get the Spirit. Now, there was a time in human history when that was true. Those 120 people up there in the upper room were saved people. And had one of them had a heart attack before the Spirit of God came, they would have went to heaven as believers in Jesus Christ. But that was the first coming of the Spirit. 
And there is a few rare exceptions in Scripture, like in Acts 8, where you have the Samaritan believers who actually are saved, but they are without the Holy Spirit. Because God, not wanting to have two churches, a Jewish church and a Samaritan church, Samaritans being those half-breeds who are despised, uh, he waits until the apostles come down and lay hands on them, authenticating that they have the same deal that the Jewish people have, and they are given the Holy Spirit. But by the time the epistles are written, God is crystal clear. You, having listened to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you hear, you believe, and you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, just as verse 5 indicates. So if what Adam did, here's the point of verse 18, if what Adam did could affect the whole human race, even so what Christ did, his act could affect the whole human race. He wants you to understand that one act had an impact on the whole of humanity. And so we saw last week that this whole idea that Jesus' death was only for a few, that's like saying Adam's sin only affected a few. No, Adam's sin affected all, just as Christ's death affected all. The atonement was not for a particular group of people. It was not for a limited group of people. It was for all. All means all. That's always what all means. It means all, all right? So the very first thing is the comparison of how one act affects all. Secondly, I want you to see the comparison of how one act changes all. How it changes all. Look now, if you will, in verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Now, there's two expressions here. One speaks of those who are made sinners, and the other expression, those who are made righteous. And understand, when God describes man as being made a sinner, when he's looking at Adam, and we were in and with Adam, it doesn't mean that Adam created, uh, that God created a being who was sinful. No, everything that God made was good. God didn't create evil. He didn't even create the devil as the devil. He created him as Lucifer, as the bright, shining, glorious one, and he became the devil. He, he, he became the fallen one that he is. And so Adam was created in perfection, but he rebelled against God. And Sanchez 5.12 says we're in Adam, so from the moment of conception, we too are sinners. And so when the text says that some are made righteous, neither is he saying that everyone who is saved never sins again. No, that's obviously not the case. So what exactly is Paul saying here? He's speaking of your standing. You're either identified in Adam, made as a sinner, or you are in another realm, identified in Christ, made as righteous, and there's nothing in between. Throughout Scripture, you're either saved or you're lost. You're either one of Christ's sheep or you're one of Satan's goats. You're either in the kingdom of light or you're in the kingdom of darkness. But there is no in-between. And so this morning, everyone listening to my voice, you're either in God's sight made sinful or you are in God's sight made righteous. God's free gift of salvation, like any gift, must be accepted before it can be possessed. Have you accepted the gracious gift of everlasting life? If you'd like more information, visit our website at searchthescriptures.org and click on the slide, Would You Like to Have God as Your Friend? 
In that message, Pastor Brogy explains about sin, separation, and salvation. And if you'd like to listen to today's message again, just click on the Resources tab and under Series, find the Book of Romans, then click on Program ROM26, entitled God's Superabounding Grace. You can also hear this or any of our messages on the Search the Scriptures app for iOS and Android devices. Tomorrow we continue our look at God's superabounding grace. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.